If you have a Bible or an app, we're going to be in Genesis 14. It'll be on the screen. If you don't, uh, two disclaimers quickly. Uh, some of you saw the sermon title and got really excited. It's uh, Warriors, Tarpets, and Family. I'm not talking about the warriors that you like, because I don't like them, all right? Uh, I titled it and then realized last night I'm going to get people all excited, and you should not get excited about losing in the finals this year. So... All right. And what you need to do is send me messages about how Christian Steph Curry is. And then I will send you messages back. So. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'm just going to leave that there. Second thing, two, two things I need to talk about at the beginning. The first was I need to rip on the Warriors because I'm the only one with the microphone. The second is that uh, we're going to talk about Genesis 14. And so you know, nobody does what we're doing um, generally. Genesis 14, uh, in the second half of Genesis 14, a guy shows up whose name is Melchizedek. And he's a mysterious man that we don't know very much about. And so there's all sorts of strange theories about who he is. And we're, most of the time, when you preach Genesis 14, you focus there. And we're actually going to leave that to next week. So this week and next week is like part A, part B. So when the camping people come back, They'll have missed the first one, and they won't understand it at all. It'll be awesome. And you'll come back next week and be like, oh, look at all these confused people with tans. Like, I know what's really going on. You and your confused suntan and your happiness from your relaxation. Uh, we, so next week, we'll talk about Melchizedek. This week, we're just going to talk about how we end up at this mysterious man, Melchizedek. And so if you're into those kinds of shows where there's characters that show up, they used to be soap operas, but now they put superheroes and aliens in them and they're in the evening and you watch these shows and things get excited. Um, I don't watch these shows because there's no winner or loser or scoring. Those are the only shows I watch. Um, so I want to read through this. It's about a guy named Abram. And Abram, uh, who later changes his name to Abraham, uh, so I'll interchange those uh, just because of the way my mind works. And Abraham is, next to Jesus, the most important human that's ever lived on this earth. Uh, he uh, has like the three major religions in the world, uh, like uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all claim descendants from Abraham. Uh, he is a man who spoke with God, and God said, you are going to be the recipient of the covenant that I create with humanity and your family, your offspring is going to uh, be forever and, and will always exist on the earth and will be so numerous that they, if anyone could ever count the dust, then they can count your family. And so Abraham lives in this promise that God gave him that is quite remarkable. When he uh, receives this promise, he has no kids. And they're both like, him and his wife are both like retirement age. And so the prospect of having lots of kids is very, very low. And so he wanders around the earth and he actually travels down to Egypt and travels back up into what is like modern day Israel, uh, wandering around. He's a man without any land, uh, even though God promises him, and we talked about this uh, before, he promises him that if you look out on the land, like he's up on a mountain, look out on the land and all of that will be will belong to your descendants. And we read about that later as Moses walks the people of Israel into the promised land. But at this point, Abraham hasn't realized any of those promises. What he has is uh, a 
a great wife and he has a lot of money and a lot of livestock and a lot of servants and a very large community that follows him around with no land. And he has this nephew named Lot. And Lot is, uh, like to be short, Lot's a bit of a dummy. Uh, he doesn't really, uh, Lot, Abraham is Lot's only family. And Lot is, you know that family member you have that can, like, you, if you were gambling or able to gamble on whether they would make the right choice or the wrong choice and you'd gamble they're going to make the wrong choice, Lot is that family member, all right? Like they, Lot shows up at Thanksgiving and everyone's like, oh, Lot is here. This is going to be awesome, you know? And, uh, and then everyone's like, why are we doing Thanksgiving? Because they haven't done the whole pilgrims thing yet. But uh, <laughs> you didn't catch that at first. You were just like, oh, yes, Thanksgiving. Um, but... <laughs> But Lot is, uh, I think we all know these. If they're not in our family, then they're in our classes or on our teams or in, in your workplace, in your work group. People who are consistently making the wrong choice. And, uh, and it becomes, uh, the relationship becomes a bit strained. And Abraham actually gave Lot the choice uh, because they became so rich that their land that they were traveling on couldn't sustain both of their wealth. Uh, if, if today we're not so agricultural, so if they had so much, such a large business that they were competing over customers in their own region, and so one, re, one business decided to focus on like that region and the other business decided to focus on that region, that's the same kind of thing. And Abraham actually, even though he's the elder and even though culturally he deserves to choose, he gives Lot the choice. And Lot actually chooses the urban area uh, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which show up later in the story and are infamous, if you know the scripture, for being evil. And Abraham gets everything else, the wilderness, the country, uh, and lives in the sticks. And so we, the story, this story, takes place there, where Abraham and Lot have kind of split up. Lot's kind of over there with all the people, and Abraham is kind of over here with just his people. Uh, and here's how the story goes. Now, I'm going to read a lot of names, and uh, I'll read them wrong probably, but we'll just, I'm going to read them fast, and then we'll all be okay with that, all right? Uh, at this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, and Kedor Lyomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiam, or uh, Goim, uh, all these kings, four of them, they went to war against five kings, Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinev king of Adma, and Shimabar king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, which is the Salt Sea, uh, which we know where that is today. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlaomer, uh, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Cato Lyomar and the kings allied with him went to war and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtorokanaim and the Zuzites in Ham and the Emites in Savakirathiam and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran near the desert. None of this means anything to you, but I'll explain it in a bit. Then they turned back and went to Enmishphat, that is, Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territories of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adam, and the king of Zeboian, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, 
So the four kings are pillaging, and the five kings come out in the, in the 14th year. Uh, they come out in the valley of Siddim against Kedor Leomar, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goyim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Ariach, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. And now the valley of Sidom was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. And the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. And they also carried off Abraham's lot, uh, Abram's lot, nephew Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And one who had escaped came and reported to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the, a brother of Eshcol and Anner, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is a place. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the woman and the other people. It, reading this is like reading a history book from outer space, isn't it? Because a lot of it, when you just read this, you kind of have to read it eight times so you can start getting used to the names. But really what happens here is these five kings decide, well, their one king, the big one with the biggest name, was subjecting these cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, you have to pay me a tribute. Uh, and it's kind of like a protection setup, like you're protected specifically from me if you pay me not to come and take everything that you have. And so you give me a tax and you'll get to keep living. And eventually the people said, well, we don't want to do that anymore. We would like it if uh, we could just keep all our stuff to ourselves. And so the king gets a few of his buddies and they start traveling down. And if you're a king who's leading a large, a large army, uh, you wouldn't just travel all that distance because that's, like, there's a lot of logistics that go into a large army. And so instead of bringing all the food with you, you just defeat cities as you're going and take their food. And so they actually move down, and you can actually geographically see this. Um, it's kind of, the Holy Land looks, and this isn't ironic, the Holy Land looks a lot like the Willamette Valley. And, and there's this coastal region, and then some hills, and then the valley, and then a mountain, and a high desert called the Transjordanian Plateau. And the main highway goes over there. It'd be like if I-5 didn't go down the valley, but it went through Bend all the way down, uh, which would be great for us, but also bad for us. <laughs> but they go down that I-5 corridor. It would have been the King's Highway, and there was a coastal highway and nothing in the middle uh, because it was so hilly. But the, the, they go down the King's Highway, and every city they get to, they just sack the city and take the stuff so they can supply their army. And they come all the way down uh, to the Salt Sea, which is where these five kings were aligned. And the kings decide, who are aligned there, who have decided we're not going to pay the tax anymore, come out to fight the four kings. And it goes terribly for them. 
Uh, the four kings just uh, rout them, and they run away, and uh, in the region, apparently, there are these tar pits, and uh, the Bible, the actual word is confusing as to whether they hid in them or they fell in them. Uh, either way, if you're running away for your life and you fall into or a tar pit, uh, it's, it's, it, that's the end. <laughs> and uh, so they get to the city of Sodom. They take everything, including Abram and his family. This is um, the first example in the scripture of tribes or like nation states warring against each other, of their allied and they're fighting against each other. And all of these, if you remember as we've talked through Genesis, all of these would have came from that moment at the Tower of Babel when God creates different languages and people spread throughout the earth. And you go with the people who are speaking your language or your family or something like that, and then you have an ability to communicate in your region and you have three or four cities, there are five cities in this case, uh, four cities going down to confront five cities that are aligned together and they end up warring against each other. And this is the first example of, in the scripture of the people and the evil in the world has grown to the point where it's become organized and regional. And so we're on the very beginning of uh, regional conflicts, of things like uh, racism and prejudice. This is the very beginning of that in human history uh, for these people who are doing uh, organized warfare for the first time. As the five smaller cities come out against the, uh, the five kings come out against the four kings that have been marauding the countryside and they line up for war. And if you're uh, into war, military history, they actually explain like they line up in war and the other team lines up in war and they run at each other and they battle. Fantastic television, terrible military strategy. If the other team has been marauding the countryside and is good at this, and your five cities walk out and you're bad at this, running at each other is like rolling the dice and seeing and just hoping they're going to trip. Right? There is a, uh, if, if you've ever been uh, in a contest or if you were in a, like a schoolyard fight when you were a kid, there's that moment when you realize this dude is going to destroy me. And all of a sudden you think like negotiation and politics and, and apologies are a great thing. All right? These are the kind of moments where or you're in a game and you get LeBron James mad and then he just kind of, LeBron James doesn't get mad, he's too nice. But let's say you get Draymond Green mad and all of a sudden he's kicking you and you're like, what is going on here? I shouldn't have gotten him so mad. And then you're losing games and you're choking in the fourth quarter. But uh, not that I have baggage from my weekend of TV, but, but when you, you can get into a battle and you realize in that battle this strategy is going to fail. And the kings come out of like Sodom and Gomorrah and they decide, well, we're going to fight just like they fight. And in the middle of the fight, you realize, oh, they fight like that because they're really good at fighting. And we're losing. And people begin running away and falling into tar pits or hiding in tar pits. They would be like wells in the countryside and stuff. Uh, but they, and this would be like a natural resource that they would produce, uh, that they would use for buildings. 
But this is just a, uh, in history, and not just biblical history, but in military history, this is a recording of a very, very early battle in which one team is very, very good at this, and the other team is very, very bad at this. Now, a lot of these kings, uh, this is the only resource we have, the Bible, and so it's difficult to date them or to say, yep, this is true because of this or not true because of that. Uh, The cities that they come from, uh, they think today archaeologically are actually under the the Dead Sea because of the way the water is, Uh, and so it's difficult to even dig them up and find records or imprints or writings or carvings or something like that that they would have had. Uh, but this, there is some things in it when they say things like uh, the king of uh, Bela, that is Zoar. Uh, no, these kings joined, fa- joined forces in the valley of Siddim, the Salt Sea, uh, and they talk about these places as if they're real places. And so we'll treat them as if they are real places and as if this actually happened. And so Lot, who decided to go down and live in um, like little Las Vegas, of Sodom and Gomorrah and finds out that the people who live there are terrible at fighting and and then his whole family is taken away. And the people, someone escapes, by the providence of God, someone escapes, they make it over to Abram who was living far from this at the time and they tell him, hey, your relatives have been taken by these four kings. And the four kings actually come down the Bend Highway, if that makes sense, they come down that side They cross over the water, they destroy these five cities, and then they begin moving northward on this side of the valley because in order to get home, you need to have enough food and supplies and you need to pay your soldiers, and so they have to continue to defeat small cities as they return home. And so they made this kind of south, north to south, and then across the water and then back up uh, south to north trip of... Uh, like a marauding or a a pillaging army who is going to supply itself by taking the things that they happen to find on the trip. They go over to Abram and tell him, hey, your family is in need. And Abram goes to his servants. uh, And and the scripture here, the wording is very ancient, so it's difficult to whether to tell they were his trained men or whether they were in some kind of a, a slavery arrangement to him. He has 318 people working for him. And he doesn't own any land, and his only business is agriculture. If you can imagine the size of the farm, and that takes 318 workers. And I know they don't have machinery and tractors, and so you kind of have to do everything by hand right at this time, but 318 employees, uh, or possibly slaves who would be paying off debts to Abraham because of businesses. Uh, business failures on their part. And those 318 would have had their families. And, and so Abraham's empire, is it's not difficult to think that there's upwards of more than a thousand people traveling with this guy and they have no land. And people at that time would live in closer quarters than we do now, so it wouldn't be so spread out. Like you, their campsites wouldn't be spread out the way they are today. And they'd live in small tents, not in large RVs and call it camping. When your TV in your trailer is bigger than the one in your house, it's not camping. Uh, but <laughs> camping is bad reception. I don't get it. But when you, they 
decide they're going to chase these people and rescue Lot. And if you're into military history, it gets even better here because there's these four kings, and now they have gotten even more people because they have all these people that they've kidnapped who will fight because they will get killed if they don't fight. And their army is growing and their supply base is growing. And Abram and 318 people go with him. Which is interesting because the number isn't rounded at all. Like it's in original languages, it's 318. And so people all over are trying to figure out the significance of 318. And, uh, and just so you know, and this is only going to be funny to math nerds, if you add all the prime numbers between 7 and 7 squared, it's 318. I do not understand how people have that much spare time. <laughs> but there is this 318 people that go with him. And they go to fight against these four large armies. And it actually describes the battle. This is, again, this is why I believe this stuff actually happens. And this is important because when Melchizedek shows up, you need to know next week that it actually happened because this story actually happened. And so they go... Uh, and they've overtaken all these, and there's these four large kings with four large armies. And uh, Abram takes his 318 men, and it actually says, during the night, Abraham, or Abram divided his men, and so he splits them up into multiple groups, and he attacked them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah and Damascus, and he recovered all the goods and the food and brought the people, his family, and the woman back. Abraham goes up against this army, and the way that wars were fought, we just learned, was you line up, we line up, we run at each other. And Abram divides his group up into smaller groups, waits until it's dark, and then attacks them in a random helter-skelter way. And if you think back that this is the very beginning of military conflicts in human history, and all of a sudden you've got military conflict just helter-skelter in your tent, there has to be some people who are saying, no, 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 this isn't how you attack. This isn't how war happens. Guys, 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 stop. Oh! All right, like, there is this uh, guerrilla warfare attack that Abram develops and Abram invents because he looks at his enemy and says, I can't beat them at their own game, but in order to get the redemption of my family, I have to beat them. And so they change the game. They attack in a way that has never been done before. I would say God's will, it takes place because of the creativity, and uh, in an awkward sense that we'll talk about in a second, the violence of Abram, God's servant. And we'll talk about the warfare part in just a second because what we walk over here is entire cities of people have died. Uh, and so we'll talk about that in just a second. But for now, <laughs> Abram has attacked these large armies, kings that are big enough to subject other cities miles and miles and miles away with just the threat of violence and have received attacks from other cities because you will receive violence if you don't pay me. And now Abram walks in and invents a whole new style of warfare with a nighttime attack. And you can imagine this 318 soldiers and Abram going, 
we're going to attack them at night. And someone going, what? Like, how are we going to know who's on our team and who's on their team? Well, what are we going to do? And Abram goes, well, basically everyone's on their team. And when I break you into small groups and you run in, you'll know who your group is. And, and Abraham develops what we're using today, like a special operations force that goes in and is able to dismantle a very, very large army. If you're into military history, all of a sudden the scripture uh, comes alive in these moments. If you spent any time in serving in the military and it was a positive experience for you, you're going, hey, this is something we still do today. There are still armies that come out and line up because they want to do a show of force and they want to say, hey, you can't beat us. And there are still armies in a dip that do, uh, well, if you're on the winning side, it's guerrilla warfare. If you're on the losing side, it's terrorism. And there are still armies that do those things in order to fight the war that they're trying to fight. And they fight wars outside of the rules that have been established for warfare. And Abram wins, and he redeems his family and brings them back. Now, this is going to be a sidebar, but I want to talk about this. We don't teach this in Sunday school, uh, this story, because there is hundreds of dead people laying around the countryside now. And just the um, abrupt and violent imagery that takes place in this story uh, should be shocking to us. And for these very early people, uh, in the very early examples of warfare, this would have been shocking. To have a situation where large groups of people are killing other large groups of people had never happened in human history. At least it hasn't been recorded. This is the first recording of large armies fighting large armies and small armies coming in and decimating large armies. And the people and their attitude towards life and their understanding of uh, human camaraderie is changing in these moments. And so what it means to be a person who has a relationship with God, who you believe created all humanity, becomes even more complicated. When we have people who fight in wars, and when we have people, and, and there are some times and situations, I'm all for peace. Like, I prefer peace. I prefer peaceful resolution. If you don't mow me... I grew up in a different country and served in their military. The only country that's ever beat America in a war is the War of 1812. You'll have to look it up. You don't teach it in your history books, but it's like the main curriculum in Canada. <laughs> like the rockets, red glare, bombs bursting in air, right here. All right. <laughs> True story. You can Google it later. But everything's cool now. Please don't, because you will destroy us if we fought now. But... <laughs> A lot. I lo we love you. America is good. All right. <laughs> when this happens, and when there's a person who decides that they're going to follow God, and then we've got a situation where there's human beings who are killing other human beings in large scale, human beings that you don't even know, when you believe that all humans are created in the image of God, and they bear 
like a, the fingerprints of God's creation. It creates a weird tension inside of a person. A lot of times today we, call, uh, we will diagnose things like PTSD. And, and I don't think that PTSD is something that's been invented. I think it's only something that we're starting to diagnose now. Because people who serve militarily and are put into radical conflict, radically violent conflict situations, have a different understanding of humanity and humanity's actions and a different understanding, therefore, of God's interaction with humanity. And that gets way more complicated than it was when everyone just lived in their own villages and everything was cool. And so Abram is living during a radical change in human history. Since this moment, throughout all human history, large groups of people have been battling other large groups of people over resources or land or assumed offense or religious reasons. Or just We are really, humanity has mastered what started in Genesis 14. And so living as a person who believes that all humanity bears the image of God because we're made in God's image, this becomes a very complicated way to live that Abraham is living over that bridge. It's very similar to uh, living, and today when we live as a Christian, uh, what does it look like to be a Christian in a less and less and less Christian society? Because if you go back 50, 60 years, Christianity was the dominant faith in the Western world, and it is no longer living in a preferred position. Christianity was kind of like the chaplain uh, to culture, and now culture has very little regard for Christianity or maybe even a disdain for Christianity. And we're living in this transition, and for Christians today, it's very, very difficult to understand and discern right and wrong actions because the rules of culture are changing so rapidly. And Abraham is living in that, or Abram is living in that, except his culture is changing in a violent way and in a warfare way. Now, Lot is taken, which provokes Abram's actions, which for Abram, there's no actual benefit besides his love for Lot and the preservation of his family in taking the action that Abram takes. He asks 318 soldiers to go with him against, or servants to go with him against, a much larger army in order to save a very a small number of people. In order to go in and knowing that some of these people would likely lose their life in order to gain the life of someone else. Abram is willing to sacrifice his riches and other people in order to redeem Lot. Uh, financially, this does not make much sense. Uh, Loyalty-wise, this does not make much sense. Except, Abram refuses to give up on someone who he's committed to. I'm a high D person. Like when I do personality profiles, I come out as a jerk. Uh, <laughs> except I get together with the other high Ds and then we're like, look at us, right? 
high D means like uh, get stuff done, like uh, dominant, like uh, my personality profile says I can give uh, answers to questions with no resources and I can give such a convincing answer you believe it's true. Uh, and, and I look at that and think, that's great, that's a gift. And normal people look at that and say, that's unstable, right? Um, but what that means, is my gifts are, are great because it allows me to, and these are just personality traits and giftings, it's not magic or anything, but it allows me to enjoy success in certain areas of my life. And the problem is it allows me to enjoy epic failures in other areas of my life. Uh, things like um, being nice. Uh, or like emotional intelligence. I've learned I have none of that, and, uh, and I'm working on those things. Uh, if you do a personality profile thing, there's, there's a DISC, it's a classic one, and the C is conscientiousness. I literally get a zero. Uh, like I, I don't even know what that word means, uh, and, and I just live my life. The problem is this. If I'm Abram, and your lot, well, if I'm Abraham, I've got a purpose to my life. I am chosen by God, and my purpose is to follow God and to live out the covenant that I was given in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 13, and, and I am on track, and I am accomplishing things. And at the end of the day, I will say, look at the things on my checklist that I have created and I have done that have moved me in the direction of fulfilling the covenant God has given me. And Lot, sorry you're not on that list. I apologize, I'm sure you're a good person, but the bus is moving on. And maybe you can catch up later when you get your act together. Like if I'm Abram, I don't risk 318 good people for the loser lot. This is one of the reasons it's really good that I'm not Abram. <laughs> because I, I look at this story and as a driven person who has a purpose through his life and understands, like, this is why we're alive and this is what we're doing and this is what God called us to, it becomes uh, much more difficult. And I say this because some of you relate to the things I'm saying. It becomes much more difficult to back up and say, maybe I shouldn't give up on this person. Like, if there's, like I am good at giving up on people. Like, I, I want you to do a good job and live your life and move forward, but I have friends who will say, you know, they follow Jesus, and they say, I'm not following Jesus anymore, and I go, well, you're off the team, see ya. Like, I, like I'm not saying that's good. Like, I have this thing inside of me that has a difficult time continuing to care when you've decided to say, I'm not on the team anymore. Now, I'm... I've learned this about myself, so I don't sit in it. Like, I am significantly better than I used to be. I want to, like, I want to be very clear about that. I am not as much of a jerk as I used to be. Uh, but on Monday mornings when I'm tired and someone emails me and says, nah, screw it, I'm out, I don't want to do Christianity anymore, I delete it and say, screw you, you're out. So don't email me that on a Monday. Do it, <laughs> do it like on a Wednesday when I'm well-rested and... And I'll email you back and say, let's have coffee and talk about this terrible decision you're making. And the reason that I, and, and like it's a funny thing about myself, but it's something that I actually, and some of you who are high D personalities, and you're like, going to church is something I accomplished today. 
Uh, I th we have staff meeting every single week, and this week I downloaded an app that creates a ding noise. So you hit a button, it goes ding, and every time we got something done, I hit it. Ding! It was awesome. I was like, look, we got stuff done. And the other people in the group are wondering, what's wrong with me? It also had a buzzer sound, so anytime I disagreed with someone, and, and then they were really out loud, said, what is wrong with you? But, but I want to accomplish. And, and, and I have this, my natural tendency is to accomplish. And what I see in this story is a story that I see in Jesus and I see in God that God, for some reason, doesn't give up on losers like Lot. And when you look at this story and you say, I'm just like the hero, Lot, that's the dangerous moment. When you want to identify with someone in the story, it's probably a lot more honest if we identify with Lot. If we say, given the choice, we would choose the easier life. Whereas Abraham goes into the wilderness to raise his flocks, and Lot moves into an urban setting where everything's going to be easier and more fun. Given a choice, you're probably choosing that. Given a choice that gains you a benefit at someone else's price or someone else's loss, you're probably choosing that most of the time. And the real truth of this story is that it's this uh, image of what happens when Christ is on earth. And if there's anyone on, like in history who ever had a purpose to his life, it's Jesus. And yet people come up to Jesus and say things like, hey, my daughter is dying. Will you come and help her? Like, I'm thinking if Jesus is, like, has, like he has a bit of a purpose to his life, helping your kid probably isn't high on his list. And yet for some reason, it is. For some reason, Jesus over and over and over again diverts from his, my assumed purpose for his life, diverts from it to show that his actual purpose in life is the people who are around him. And so when I'm living my life, and this is not meant to be like personal therapy time, but if, if you're a high D like I am, when I'm living my life and I am accomplishing things at the cost of the people who are around me, I'm actually failing at the real purpose in my life. That's a hard truth for those of us who have that high D personality. Those of you who score really high on the C, you're like, I've already mastered this. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> so this sermon isn't for you. <laughs> but when you start to live your life on purpose, you'll be presented with opportunities just like Abraham was and just like Jesus was, that may divert from the purpose that you think you have in your life. Like if you're on this career track and you're moving forward and you're like, if I work just a little bit more, I will achieve my career earlier. And you're given this opportunity that's going to take time away from your progress. That doesn't mean it's not an opportunity that God has given you. Or you can volunteer or coach a little league team or do something like this. That takes real life time and it takes away from the advancement of something else, this purpose that you have in life. But if the purpose you have in life is accomplished at the cost of the people around you, then I would say, and this is a convicting moment in my life, uh, that your purpose isn't godly. 
Because even Jesus, who lived on earth and had a purpose in his life, had time for people that no one else had time for. Had time for the people who weren't going to help him achieve the goals in his life. If you're a high achiever, this is the difficult truth of Jesus' life. Like Jesus was a high achiever. He died for all humanity and rose from the dead. You'll never do that. Maybe, well, you really likely will never do that. But even in that, Jesus had time for the people around him. Even as Abraham is developing his own business and growing his own family and living into the will that God, or the covenant that God had given him, the promises that God has given him, even Abraham goes over to help Lot. And so you know, Lot doesn't turn his life around. Lot goes back to the same life that he had before. Abraham goes to redeem him, not to fix him, but to continue to give him the chance at turning his own life around. If you're the kind of person who is sacrificing the people around you for the purpose in your life, my hope for you today is that you can sacrifice the purpose you have in your life for the people who are around you. Because that would actually be a better purpose. If you, in your mind, can name your lot. For some of you, it's uh, relatives, brothers, sisters. For some of you, it's your kids. For some of you, it might be your parents. I want to know my hope for you is that your patience won't run out. Because the story of Jesus isn't that Jesus fixed them. The story of Jesus and the story of Abraham is that he never gave up on the possibility of them being fixed. He never gives up. He is, we use the word relentless. He's relentless in his open-door policy to screw-ups and failures and people like Lot. So God might not fix that family member, that child, that parent, that friend, but he won't quit. And you probably won't be able to fix them either. You should not quit. Should not stop opening yourself, opening your heart to them, opening your thanksgiving to them, even though it might never change them. They will know the love of Jesus because the love of Jesus never quit on them. And I don't say that just flippantly. Like, I think this might be the most difficult part of loving people is loving people who you can see the changes they need to make in their life, and they can't. Or worse yet, they can, and they don't care. So I don't say this in a way that's like, here's the three steps to happiness and freedom in your life. I say this to say, this is a much more difficult way of living, but in the story of Jesus and in the story of Abraham, the one who is living with God and living in the promise of God is the one who doesn't quit is the one who continues to open his heart to people and open his heart to the people or their heart to the people around them 
to say it's not too late. You can still turn around. And even if you don't, I won't quit on you. The message of Jesus to us and the message of the church to the world. Let's stand and pray together and then we'll worship. Our God, we are thankful for uh, your relentless pursuit of us. We are thankful for the way that you lead others to care for us. And we want to ask just, well, I want to ask for the people in here who are wildly driven and really successful, that you would give them the eyes to see and the breaks in their life in order to serve and love the people around them. I pray with them for the forgiveness that we need for sacrificing the people around us in order to achieve and for making achievement and purpose our God over Jesus being our God. And then I want to pray for the people in this room who need patience, for the people they love, who are like Lot and keep getting dragged away and caught up in stuff, stuff they would say, it's not my fault that the kings came and ransacked my village, but why were you there in the first place? And we have all this frustration towards them. I pray you would free us from our frustration, not naively, but in a way that love overcomes any negativity that we feel in order, God, in order that we might experience you because you refuse to give up on us no matter how much we mess up our lives. Allow us to experience your love in a giving way as we give it to someone else. And we do that because we've received your love, because you are our Savior and you are our Lord. In your grace we pray this. Amen.